like. I mean, private dick Johnny Jules. You can do it. One last try. Just tell me you'll take the case. Yeah. Come on, Mike. Hatracks can't talk. Shut up, paperboy. Edith, I'm sorry about forgetting to program you a character, okay? But just hang on in there. I don't think I can do this. First of all, I don't know what a private dick is. Tell you the truth, I thought they were all privates. Secondly, why is this desk made of trees? Mike, do you need your affirmation droid? Mike, you are a good judge of character, and you have big muscles. Where'd you get that? In your quarters. It was under your bed. You are a super fast runner, and you look good in shorts. You said it was a massage ball. Well, I guess I didn't want everybody to know about it. Oh, maybe this one wasn't such a good idea. I love it. So this is Control Structure episode 67 for August 12th, 2014. Big week to everyone listening. Uh, this show does have show notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash CS67 to see them. I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and with me today is the other host, uh, Steven. Hi, Steven. Hi, Andrew. So uh, I hear you're uh, gone home. Yes, I'm, I'm back at my, my family's house for a few weeks here and uh, working from home and everything. So I'm doing the show from my a dark and, and uh, potentially noisy bedroom with a rooster in the background. Well, um, let's see, don't, don't feel strange because, like, sometimes this podcast has to pause for garbage collection, so... <laughs> Except for the rooster doesn't beep when he backs up. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you know, anyway. <laughs> Not that I've ever heard. Um, let's see. I, too, uh, went home over the past weekend. Uh, one of my friends was getting married, and uh, and that was a pretty weird setup there, at least me knowing about it, since his brother messaged me uh, over Steam, of all places, uh, maybe a month ago, maybe less than a month ago, saying that there's gonna be, you know, a party for Brady, uh, you know, like on this Thursday. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty weird time to call me over to Ohio for, like, a cookout or something. But, sure, yeah, uh, I've kind of wanted a uh, summer vacation. So, it was, like, a week later that I actually got the invitation for the wedding, and it was, like, you know, last Saturday. So, uh, that was, uh, you know, pretty interesting. And uh, do you know happen to know the guy who wrote Dis- Dixie? You know, uh, like that one song of like the Confederate South. I feel like I should know that, but I, I don't know offhand. Okay. Uh, Dan Emmett. Okay. It, it just so happens that his hometown and my hometown is like the same, and uh, like every year about this time, there's a uh, like a music festival like named after him that happens. So, like, it's a huge street fair. They block off several streets downtown. So I went down there, like, two nights and ate so much grease. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, sort of what's been going on with me. Um, As for, like, looking for apartments, it seems like my uh, apt-get program has kind of stalled and uh, nothing has really happened. 
So, yeah, I guess I'll have a little fun with that. So, I actually went to one of my friend's weddings this past weekend, too, except for it was the opposite direction. It was out uh, not too far from Lancaster, out on the eastern side of the state. So, I was way out, out there camping in, in the in-between days. So, that's, uh, uh, that's like an Amish country? Yeah, I, I passed by a roadway where it had a, a sign for buggies in the in the right-hand lane, and it has, like, this special lane built on the side of the road just for the buggies alongside the highway. Um, I did pass one buggy, too. Yeah, like, my hometown is, like, sort of surrounded by Amish. Um, like, if you go down certain roads, that's, like, all you'll see. Um, but it's, like, a little north and east of where I grew up. That's, uh, Holmes County, which is... I think it's Holmes County. It's, like, the largest group of Amish people anywhere in the world. Wow. So, like, I've seen those, you know, buggy lanes. Um, but, uh, like, the main, uh... The main road coming out of my town, you know, coming this way, you know, it's like kind of nice and straight and you can see far. So like buggies tend not to sneak up on you that fast. So, but uh, see, and even once uh, my mom had an Amish guy come over because my mom had a foot powered sewing machine and she was selling it to the guy for like his daughters or something. So, like, there's actually been an Amishman at my house when I was, like, 13, I think. So, uh, that was, uh, it wasn't strange, but it wasn't fun. It was just a thing. A thing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's stuck a, in your memory a that you thing. remembered it. Well, this thing. Well, I also had to go out and water his horse, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's kind of funny. What do you do, like, hey, kid, go water my horse? <laughs> well, no, my mom yelled up. And apparently I didn't do it right because, like, the thing couldn't, like, reach down into the bucket. <laughs> so, like, it apparently spent a few minutes out there, like, trying to, like, get into this bucket of water. <laughs> so, but, uh, it, it, everything worked out, so. But, uh, hey, how about some raspberry? Raspberry! 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 Hey, a Kickstarter, too. Yes, we combined both of them today. So now there's a snap pie cam, snap pie cam rather. And what it is is this guy is built uh, housing for a Raspberry using the the cameras that you plug in, and he combined it with a, a, a lithium poly battery, and uh, you have a camera. He has what five? I think it was five different models. He has a compact that has five megapixel camera, uh, and then he has the adventure adventurer that has uh, a little bit extra. So it says it has an LCD screen on it with touch in four tactile buttons and then a fuel gauge. So you can actually know what your battery power is. So I'm assuming the other one must not have a, a touch screen on it. it. Must be it just takes the pictures. Mm -hmm. And he has a mega zoom model that has a big lens attached to it. And it seems to be pretty similar in the specs. I think mainly it just has the lens on it. Looks like it's uh, based off of a Model A, which is the model with less memory and one USB port. So, I thought that was a, a creative use of the the Pi. I'm sure the the cost of buying one is way more than buying a camera, but that that's it's an interesting interesting concept though, because this means you can write software for your camera easily easily. So, uh, someplace uh, the article that it pointed to this was talking about how 
you could hook this up with Dropbox and you could save your, uh, you know, your pictures and it pushes it up to your Dropbox account right away as it happens. But it doesn't have to stop with Dropbox. You could use, you know, the Google Drive or you could use Microsoft's, what is it, OneDrive that they have? Anything like that, uh-huh. you could plug it into and potentially use it with that. Or you could have it posting to the internet as soon as you take the picture. You could have it have it go post on your blog right then and there your latest pictures. Huh? Yeah, I'm uh, just flipping through some of these uh, pictures that he's taken. They seem pretty decent, really. What he's what he's done with it. I think maybe the key is he's putting a lens on it for so some of the close up micro shots. Yeah. He's got the lens on it, and he's just combining a decent camera with a, a good lens. He even took a picture of a raspberry. Who oh, knew? I must have missed that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's pretty cool. Now for this week's LOL Windows. <laughs> so, have you ever plugged in a wireless keyboard? Or just, in general, any peripheral? And, you know, it shows up in your device manager as a toaster. I never have, but what came to mind when I saw this was the old flying toaster screensaver. That was my first thought. <laughs> So, yeah, apparently this one guy, uh, I'm not sure if what kind of uh, model or uh, brand that, that the keyboard was, but apparently he plugged it in and it the icon for it was a toaster. So, uh, apparently it goes back to, I think it was like the Windows SDK or something, or like a driver sample that, uh, like, they just used, this manufacturer used, and they didn't bother to change the icon for it. So, I mean, I guess, you know, how would they test it? I mean, it's a wireless keyboard, you don't exactly plug those in. So, and uh, also on on this uh, uh, thread here, um, or was a like an actual USB toaster. So, oh really? I didn't see the actual USB toaster. That's kind of funny. Uh, apparently it's been deleted. Ah, uh, too bad. So, so, so I I like the comment on the main post there. Like one guy says, maybe your keyboard has too many hot keys. <laughs> Well, and then uh, I think it's like down the uh, one of the comments, I think, for the answers. Um, can you uh, look on your keyboard and is, is there a slot for bread? <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty funny there. Yes. Uh, but, you know, an actual toaster would use an awful lot of power, right? Because like you're heating up like an, like a heating element and stuff. You know what also gets pretty hot? CPUs. That they do. And it seems like, you know, the folks over at Intel are trying to do something about it. So one of the, uh, like, the better things you can do to cool down your CPU is to shrink the transistors inside of it. So I think right now the cutting-edge, like, lithography techniques, I think they're called, uh, allow uh, circuits, like, going all the way down to 20 nanometers. Uh, But 
uh, like earlier this week, an embargo was lifted, and uh, people have been sort of reporting on the next generation of Intel chips. Uh, they're apparently codenamed Broadwell, and these are manufactured on their upcoming 14 nanometer process. So apparently, uh, like a couple months ago, when they were first starting to manufacture these, uh, Intel had some troubles getting the yields up to like satisfactory or profitable levels. They seem to have solved that. So like, uh, see, if you have any idea of how CPUs are made, it starts out with like a, a like a cylinder of silicon, and they're generally like three hundred mi- millimeters wide, and they're like cut into like really tiny slices. So like you have this like sort of circle that, you know, the CPUs are, you know, or any other kind of processor really is, like, manufactured on. So, like, there's generally, like, a set number of defects, like, on, like, per service area. Um, but apparently, uh, like, there's actual, actual, actually some uh, defects in, like, actually putting all those circuits on there. Uh, but it seems to have worked itself out a little bit. Uh, so... So one interesting thing when I had been reading it, they were talking about you, you had said about how the costs have been higher initially. They're saying that because that these are smaller than the the twenty nanometers going down the extra what six that that allows them to cut more out of the chip, so that makes the price cheaper. So even though maybe it's more would be more expensive to make them because they're making more out of each silicon wafer, it's letting the price still remain more constant. Right. Um. So, like, they're talking about their second-generation FinFET transistors. Uh, those are the 3D uh, ones that they were ex- so excited about last year. And they also talked about a uh, new series of CPUs called Core M. Uh, these are supposed to be, like, their really mobile chips uh, to be put into things like tablets. So, like, they're talking about, uh, like, getting the uh, heat dissipation down below, like, 3 or to 5 watts or so. So you can have, like, a 10-inch tablet that's, like, 10 millimeters thick and, like, have it be fanless. And they were talking about all sorts of, uh, like, design and engineering that they had to do to actually make the CPUs thinner uh, so they can be fit into smaller or thinner devices. In fact, uh, they did something that's really interesting in that, like, part of these CPUs actually stick below the uh, circuit board that they're mounted on. So, oh, so like, like inside the circuit board, almost. Well, no, that there, there would be a rectangle cut out of the board. So, okay. like some of these, uh, I forget what exactly that they are, but they extend like below the surface. So, like, there's actually a hole cut out through the board, supposedly. Huh. Uh, I think they're inductors, I think. But uh, yeah, like if you've ever seen like an Intel CPU, there's some uh, chips that are, like, actually mounted onto the CPU itself, but they stick down below it a little bit. Or that might have been, like, the previous generation. Okay, I'm not sure if I've... I've mainly seen just, like, the desktop chips. Yeah, those. Um, Oh, okay. Hmm. Uh, I think they might have been more common when there was actually, like, space in the middle. Um, Okay. Like, more socketed type, rather than, like, the funny design that they have with the chips... with the uh, pins on the motherboard. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, apparently these are things to be looking out for. Apparently they will be released in time for Christmas. Like, in time, in time for, like, systems to be made to be sold and not at the very last minute. 
So that means that they already have them basically out there because Christmas is not that far away if you have to make a whole tablet or whatever out of it and test it any. Right. So, you know, as as I mentioned that they started this like several months ago. So, yeah. Have you ever wondered about mobile game development? Like, uh, well, like all the stuff that's out there? I've seen there's a lot of games out there, but it doesn't seem like there's any many complex games. Most of the games are very simplistic and just kind of do one thing and kind of like a flash game, really, that you see in the computer. Yeah, it's trying to, like, hold back the sea. You know, like, there's just a flood of everything coming towards you. Uh, so this one guy, he's apparently made two games. He uh, pretty much threw up his arms and said, forget it. I've made two things, and they're, like, pretty much on all the platforms, and, like, no one's bought them. I haven't made any money on them at all. So, like, he goes through, like, all the, uh, you know, it just pretty much describes the games that he made. Uh, the first one, uh, let's see, was Catch the Monkey, I think? Yeah, Catch the Monkey. Yes. So, what you uh, were supposed to do is, like, tickle monkeys... Uh, and wait for the farmer to come and uh, dispose of them. And, like, he uh, wanted to make it very art-heavy because he was the one doing, like, the programming and most of the other business functions, and the artist was the one, like, sort of dedicated to what he was doing. Uh, so, like, he sort of, like, wanted to make it a little bit cutesy to, like, you know, go for, like, the the, uh, like the teenage audience and, like, uh, kids. But yeah. apparently it turned out to be targeted towards Asian teenagers. Uh, the, the, the funny thing about that, though, was I think his, I think his artist was an Asian. Asian. Yeah. So that's probably why they accidentally targeted the wrong audience, because that's what he thought would be, be acceptable in the market. So there were uh, plenty of engineering challenges, uh, but apparently he partnered with a company that... Uh, like, makes this software that you can program C++ and you can deploy to, like, all the all the mobile platforms and, like, even the obscure ones like uh, Kindle and Nook and, like, some others. And he also had to work around, like, the, uh, like the Android requirement for, like, size. Uh, apparently there's a 50 megabyte restriction, but this game was 70. Um... But uh, apparently worked through that. He apparently had like a buildable or rather sellable prototype within like a couple months. But it took over a year for it to get done because like all the obscure uh, platforms. It it sounds to me like maybe he went too complex too quick. Because I mean it sounds like it's a very smart guy that knew what he was doing. Like he he went out to make a game and he made a game that was a, a quality game as much as he could anyways but then he he just kind of he went all in it and then it failed and then he made this second mobile game so in total uh he spent two hundred thousand dollars over a you know a little over a year uh for our lives and we made seven thousand dollars yeah exactly they went overboard on it and the return was so small They, they they needed to do maybe smaller chunks i think to kind of test and see what works. So uh, apparently he uh, had a had uh, a daughter like about that time, and like he's looking around and he can't find any books that sort of like go f- over the alphabet, you know, but are like made for kids. 
So he made A is for app. And, uh, you know, he even did, like, the in-app purchases thing. And apparently that really set him back because apparently every platform does that differently. So, uh, you know, he actually made something that he sort of wanted to make, but apparently it didn't sell any uh, either. So, uh, did, did, did you watch the video, his promotional video for that? That was really funny. I did not. Like D is for data structure. I is for, I forget what it was, but all like computing terminology yeah. was the letters. It, it was really funny. So, apparently, uh, this began a multi-platform cycle of despair. Monday, get an email from the publisher of problems in the QA uh, on some device or a request for changes. Tuesday, try to replicate the issue. Wednesday, uh, confirm fixing it, or if I can't reproduce it, make a stab at it. Thursday, ship the build off to the publisher. Friday, pray to God this was the last time I'd have to do that. See, the interesting thing was he identified his first with his first game that what killed him was all this multi-platform support. They had just too much stuff going on. Yeah. And he identified it, but he still got sucked into that trap the second time around. So... Of just having to support too much. So uh, that cycle repeated weekly for seven months. So it finally uh, was complete fall 2013, a year from when we first started it, and nine months after we had a stable, playable version. Uh, our project costs went from $25,000 to, to uh, $200,000 again. After making a single change that the publisher requested, did A for App sell? No, it sold worse. So he, uh, you know, he learned, like, uh, was seven things here. Uh, people say, always say, write what you love. I didn't. Uh, number two, I don't like casual games. I don't play them. They bore me. And, you know, it's like, I love RPGs filled with stats and numbers and first-person shooters and real-time strategy games. In short, I love PC games. What the hell am I doing making games for a platform I don't use myself? Uh, number three, and this is what I really like. Yesterday, 300 apps were released on the App Store. I didn't bother counting, but it looked like half of them were games. 150 new dreams went on sale. How many will hit the top 100? Probably zero. How many of these will be profitable? Zero. How many of these will cover their costs? Probably zero. But here's the real kicker. Tomorrow, 150 new dreams will go on sale. Today's will be old and discarded, and for you to make the new lists on the day you launch. Uh, like, the only time that you will make the new lists. Uh, this, this guy does sound a, a tiny bit bitter, though, through all this. Yeah. I mean, not every single game that's released is going to flop. There are going to be people out there who are genius and going to make a game that's going to sell. Uh, so Apple, I don't know. Apple boasts about hitting 1 million apps. That's about the worst number you could hear. It means that 999,999 other people are competing with me for a customer's attention and wallet. Uh, number four, there are 100 winners and 999,900 losers in the App Store. And uh, he also goes along about uh, like unsustainable uh, costs. Like, you know, buy an app for a dollar. Like, it probably is unsustainable at that level. Um, and, like, the costs of making these only goes up. Uh, another thing he mentions is that the average casual game app store player has absolutely no brand loyalty. The casual player only likes that game and only plays it. For some reason, they don't care about what else the same guy has made. 
is completely backwards from other businesses. Uh, a casual player who likes Farmville doesn't care that Zynga made something else, they'll only like Farmville. It's next to impossible to make a business in that environment of no loyalty. Yeah, I think one thing is he re- released kind of a stupid game. I mean, tickling a monkey's belly. That is kind of stupid. Yeah. For, for, and he expected to be paid for it. But there's a lot of stupid games out there that are free. So it's like, if I just want a, something to waste my time with, I don't have to pay money to waste my time. Yeah. In- and that's, that's sort of hinted on in his last point. Casual gamers don't love games. They love the dis- distraction. Yeah. So, uh, not again. Uh, let's see. He says there's a place where the cost of making games has dropped significantly. A place where customers have fierce loyalty, follow the creator's every move. A place where the average game sells for 20 bucks and people are happy to pay it. A place where customers regularly search out new things. A place where you get in front of your target audience for free through review scores. And there's a place where customers pay above and beyond the asking price just to get extra stuff. It's called PC and console game development. The target audience even calls themselves gamers. They wear their logos on hats and t-shirts. They put in-development game art on their desktop and Facebooks. Uh, they share game development news uh, with everyone they know, and they have an unquenchable thirst for new games. So it looks like, uh, you know, he's like pretty much found the way. And, uh, so now he's making a PC game called Archmage Rises. Well, he thinks he's found the way though, and, but he hasn't actually re- released this yet. It would be interesting to follow up yeah. in about a year or so and see if he's made it or if he's flunked again. He seems like a bitter man, and he may have this this bitter adder- attitude may just kind of drag him down, and he may just like keep failing. I don't know. It would so, be interesting to see. So, like in this crisis before, you know, like when he was realizing all of this, like he had to fire his artist which turned out to be his best friend. Yes, so, I, I think that's part of it. Yeah, so, like, he had to, like, con him into, like, making the art for, like, the game he's working on now. Um, and, like, he showed a prototype to one of his other friends, and he's like, this is, like, the game I've always wanted to play. So, like, that meant a lot to him. And I think, like, every game, every person he showed the game to likes it. It'll be interesting to see see how it comes out. It does make sense that you should write the type of program that you're interested in, because if you're interested in it, you know what features the targeted audience should have, because you are the targeted audience, so you know what would be fun to have in it. So that much does make a lot of sense to me, I think. Yes. So let me drop that link in there. So uh, now on to some boring things, uh, like uh, Internet Explorer. That's pretty boring. Uh, starting on January 12th, 2016, Microsoft will only support the latest and greatest version of Internet Explorer for a given operating system. So are you still running Internet Explorer 8 on Windows 7? Get with the times or be hacked to hell again and again. So I think this is a pretty good idea for them. Yeah, it's, it's got to be a pain to support older versions of IE, just continually patching it. At some point in time, when you get into separate products like that, that's just such a time waster. People should upgrade and just upgrade it. Yeah. Um, for instance, uh, you know, they were still supporting Internet Explorer 6 up until April uh, for Windows XP. How old is 6? That's got to be 
before 2000s? Uh, I think right around 2000, uh, because it you know it came installed with XP. So I'm okay. thinking that I'm thinking that it got released like a few months before. Yep, that's probably the case then. And that's... I and I remember like way back in the day, like installing Internet Explorer six. It was so great because that was like the latest thing that was out at the time. Like that was back like. There was no Firefox. It was called Netscape. So. That, that's the thing. Nowadays, if you're using IE6 still, you probably shouldn't be allowed on the internet. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, times quickly changed. So, uh, like, after I was, you know, convinced that uh, Firefox would work with uh, uh, Flash, uh, I went to that and didn't look back. So... And generally, the web worked even on Firefox back, you know, back when it hit version one. So, so you you were using it on version one. You actually had it back then. Yeah, I, okay. Like pretty soon after version one, anyway. I have no idea what my first first version was. I bet if I pulled one of my really old flash drives, I actually have one that quit writing. It reads, but it won't write. It's just like a time capsule <laughs> in, in into history of, of what I had however many years ago. It's like a 512 megabyte one. I'll have to look. I bet I have Firefox on it someplace in the installer for it just to see what version it is. So, and for those who won't upgrade, there's Enterprise Mode for Internet Explorer. So, so you know, that's legitimate, though, because what they're doing there is they're making it for businesses. They have an application that was written specifically for a certain version of IE making it so that they can continue to use that application and support support it going into the future. That way they don't have to rewrite the whole thing right away. Well, so th that I wouldn't say rewrite the whole thing. I mean, sure, there's lots of crappy code out there, but generally what breaks is, like, some very specific functionality in, like, one or two places. It, it gets tricky, though. If, you, if you're dealing with legacy code, I mean, it could be structured very poorly, and it could be very painful and bug-inducing to touch anything. Like, you could touch... It's like like one of those towers, you know, those games with the, the square bricks where you do crossways. Is Jenga. it Jenga? Okay. And then you pull one out at the bottom, and the whole thing comes down. Well, some of your legacy code is like that. You've patched it and fixed it so many times. There's so many blocks missing from the tower. That all you need is one more block out, and the whole thing comes down. I don't know. So, like, I'm not exactly sure how this enterprise mode works, but... I think it might be pretty similar to what you have in the developer tools and that you can actually tell uh, IE 11 to uh, even uh, at least, I think, from maybe 10, that you can go into your developer tools and tell it to render as if it was like IE 7, 6, or maybe even 5. Um, and like, especially on my blog, you can see like the uh, like the CSS just degrade into... Like an unreadable mess. <laughs> it, it, it's it's interesting what they did there because it really is the updated browser acting like the older browser. So, so I, I think that was a good move on Microsoft's part to provide that uh, support for the older but, software. But uh, it was, I think it was like last week or so that uh, we were trying to replicate a bug that uh, only happened in IE8, uh, but. I'm not sure if we weren't replicating it right, or if it, or if it was because it was really IE 11 I was using. So, oh, uh, because you're using the developer. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, ah, uh, well, uh, let's go on to the uh, new and shiny. 
uh, like the stuff released at SciGraph. It's a like a computer graphics conference of some type. It uh, started, I think, on Monday, and I'm not sure if it's ended already. But uh, while there, Kronos announced a new version of OpenGL, version 4.5. It has something called Direct State Access. So I think it might be the missing piece of what OpenGL 3.0 was supposed to be. Uh, they also gave updates on OpenGL ES 3.1 and WebGL Adoption. So uh, WebGL is, of course, you know, like the uh, the browser-based 3D uh, API, and uh, mm. ES is for things like cell phones and tablets and stuff. And uh, like the main OpenGL is supposed to be a superset of ES, and like some of the uh, uh, feature improvements like actually make that happen. Uh, so like. Uh, it seems like I'm pretty much the only person I know of that has actually messed around with uh, OpenGL. Uh, but it was like kind of has its roots back in the 80s uh, where like function calls uh, were the thing. And like a lot of the API has very few parameters on them. So uh, like if you need to say uh, create a texture or like configure like some parameters about a texture... Uh, what you would do is you would say, okay, OpenGL, I want you to, like, pay attention to this particular texture. And then you, like, you call maybe five or ten or whatever uh, functions to change the state of that texture. Uh, like, whatever, so can, uh, like, whatever, so whatever texture you're holding on to, I want you to set these things on it. And then, okay, I want you to go over to this other texture, and I want you to change, like, whatever parameters of the texture you're currently holding to like these things um it's like a sort of inefficient way of doing things uh but uh like that's pretty much how it how the api worked for not just textures but for everything uh like shaders and uh like display lists and uh like uh was it vertex buffers and stuff it's it's it is a it's what you would call a stateful machine uh yes so i'm I'm pretty sure that you'd be sort of familiar with HTTP, which is a very stateless thing. Yes. Uh, so, like, sure, there's cookies, but, like, other than that, you know, like, each request is sort of independent from each other. Mm -hmm. um, whereas OpenGL is all about the state and remembering where you are and what you're doing and, you know, like, what you have. Um, but I, I, I've, I've seen code like that before at work, some of the really old stuff we have all these class, each project, the old code has this class called var.cs. Inside of var.cs, there's all these properties and public fields, and other parts of the application set stuff in var.cs. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen when you change something so, in there. So, in other words, a global state. Yes, it's yeah. nasty. OpenGL is kind of like that. So... Uh, like what happens is if you write some sort of a library is that you have to change like whatever you're holding on to in order to like actually change the state of what you want to. Um, so that's like function call overhead, uh, which like nowadays is kind of a bad thing because GPUs are like so much faster than CPUs. So like what direct state access does, it pretty much adds on a parameter to all of these like configuration functions. Okay. And like, uh, like other, a few other things, uh, that actually says, okay, 
I want you to pay attention. I want you to take this texture ID and I want you to do these things on that texture ID. And so now, so now this is going to make it faster for the the API to work with the GPUs and also make the code a whole bunch cleaner. Yes. Um, the good news is that this has been available as an extension for quite a while. I think for maybe two or three years. Uh, but it's finally like actually re- reached the core specification. So like if you want to call call yourself uh, OpenGL 4.5, you must have that functionality. So yeah, that's great. So uh, yep. let's go on to something that's sort of related, uh, like the unfavorite CPU series of this network, uh, Tegra, will apparently have the first 64-bit Android CPU uh, called the Tegra K1. I think it's uh, like actually called code named uh, Denver, uh, but apparently it will come in two flavors. Uh, it will have a dual-core version up to 2.5 gigahertz, and it will have a quad-core but 32-bit version at 2.3 gigahertz. Uh, the 64-bit CPU has some sort of weird dynamic code optimization that analyzes code at runtime, so it can like sort of like analyze and like sort of like remove the redundant stuff. I guess. Well, I thought it was caching. It was caching the commands or something. I, I, yes. I thought talking about that. I, I didn't really read it in detail, but it's, it sounded kind of interesting. Yeah, it optimizes frequently used software routines at runtime into a dense, highly tuned microcode equivalent routine. Uh, these are stored in a dedicated 128 megabyte main memory based optimization cache. Uh, after being read into this cache, the optimized uh, micro-ops are then executed, refetched, and executed from the instruction cache as long as as long as needed and as capacity allows. Um, so that sort of sounds like it's out of order, but apparently this is still an in-order uh, architecture. Uh, so uh, this reduces the need to re-optimize routines. Instead of using hardware to extract the instruction-level parallelism inherent in code, Denver extracts the ILP once via software and then executes those routines repeatedly, thus amortizing the cost of the extraction over many executions. So, uh, this is a very, like, I'm not exactly back, I'm not exactly up on CPU architecture, but this sounds pretty interesting and I'm very curious as to how it will perform. Yes, it sounds like that's almost a bigger deal than, uh, it being a 64-bit CPU, to me anyways, I mean, what, the 64-bit may give you a tiny bit of speed, but not that much. You probably don't have gigabytes and gigabytes of RAM on the phone. True. But this, this optimization of the CPU chip to make it dynamic so they don't have to hard-code hardware to do your, your tasks tasks that are often done, seems like that could add a lot of performance. So, yeah. Uh, we'll see uh, what uh, devices this ends up in. So, uh, so did you notice a internet interruption today? Mm, not really, and I was online all day remoted in, too. Okay. Well, the internet as a whole reached over 512,000 BGP routes today. Uh, BGP being the uh, border gateway protocol. It's pretty much how routers talk to each other, and it... it and through that, it's how, uh, you know, data gets around the internet. 
So like if you ask your router, where is this IP address? It'll say, oh, go over there. So you go over, so you send a packet over there and that router, you know, knows where, you know, that IP address is. So it's like, go over in that direction. That's pretty much how, you know, what happens with a BGP. But if you experienced some uh, internet interruptions today, you might have had some crashing routers running out of table space. Uh, so apparently this is, you know, just like the capacity of some routers, like they don't have enough RAM or something to store uh, that many routes. So, so it, so if uh, it happened today, that means it's going to happen tomorrow, probably. So they they must have hopefully some plan to update these routers soonish. Um. Well. Well, we're already talking to each other, so um, at must least have there's, fixed it. There's, there's. <laughs> I mean, it's not something that's intermittent. I, I don't think. Uh, because like if you reach your capacity, you know. Either you crash or some things get ignored. Okay. My my assumption was it was caching in some way, and it was just like a cache that gets built up over time. So it was, it's actually storing the full list of routes in one shot, so it would reoccur quickly. Then yeah, you're saying okay. So uh, my company, uh, apparently, pretty much everyone uh, went home just after lunch because the internet accidentally. So uh, so your internet was out totally then. Uh, pretty much. Um, really? Yeah, because I went to Subway uh, for lunch as usual, and when I came back, you know, like, everyone's, like, sort of despaired, I guess. Um, yeah, so I, like, you know, sat around and talked to some of the uh, uh, designers, and, uh, you know, we're talking about whatever, and apparently, like, the internet is, like, very, was very intermittent, so... Huh. And then, like, the CEO comes in and she asks, okay, so what do you have uh, for home internet? And it seems like pretty much everyone has Fios in my office. So it's like, well, that might be bad because, you know, Verizon might be down too. And that's uh, apparently, uh, like, the underlying uh, service at the office. Okay, so I so asked you all them. So I asked, you know, someone with a phone, go to theandrewbailey.com. So, and it loaded, I'm like, okay, yeah, uh, Fios is good, because that's my website that's actually running. So you still post it. Uh, yeah, behind me. So, uh, and I was like, oh, it might actually be cached. Well, look at the bottom of e every one of my pages. It'll say, like, request received at, like, some date, and it'll also say, like, rendered in, like, how many milliseconds. So, so, yeah, things might be a little rough. Um, a little rough. How about uh, USB devices? It turns out that some very bad code can hide in the firmware of USB devices and that it can be used to do very bad things uh, to your uh, machines, like everything from like key loggers to like redirecting your DNS queries and like pretty much all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, unfortunately, you can't really pick at device firmware that well, so you're pretty much screwed. Those, you know, if they, they can success, successfully pull this attack off, which it sounds like they have prototypes of it, it, it's it's a pretty devastating attack because it's in the firmware, and like they said, you could format your flash drive, and that wouldn't matter. It, it's still going to uh, be be there on your flash drive because it's within the d device firmware itself. So I believe this came out at uh, Black Hat. 
It's a security conference in Las Vegas that happened, like, last week, I think. Um, so, like, that's, like, pretty much a security conference. So, like, some, like, pretty much everything gets hacked there. Yes. So, um, yeah, it seems like we're kind of stuck here. And it's not really surprising because USB was not designed as a secure protocol. So, come to find out that it's not secure is, <laughs> is not very surprising. But... That wasn't in the specifications. But then again, USB is like literally everywhere. So we're kind of screwed. The, the interesting idea, just trying to... Because it's, it's saying it installs it as a device on, onto the computer. So I'm thinking... So, so the hacker, say, has control over the, the, the flash drive that he starts off with. He start, installs the, the code onto the, the firmware. So now you plug it into a system... And the system pulls the device driver, from what I was understanding, off the flash drive to install it. And at that point in time, they can install their device driver onto your system. It seems like at that point in time, when you're installing the device driver, that as people learn about this attack, and it, it seems like it should be stoppable at that point, perhaps, when you're installing the device driver. Right. So... Uh, it says here that uh, Noel says he and Lel, which, you know, came up with this, uh, reached out to a Taiwanese USB device maker, whom he declines to name, and warned the company about their research. Over a series of emails, the company repeatedly denied that the attack was possible. Um, and then they contacted the USB Implementers Forum. Uh, consumers should always be in, should always ensure that their devices are from a trusted source and only that trusted sources interact with their devices. So pretty much, you know, like only use USB devices that you know, you know, that you trust and not any of the bad ones. Which which comes down to you can't plug your flash drive into any random computer, which is why you carry your flash drive anyways. Yeah. So Dropbox and uh, Box and all those services are on their eyes now. Yeah. And to be honest, I've always liked network transfers better. I quit carrying a flash drive when my old... I used to have a Corsair one. That was a pretty nice one. And it finally broke after however many years of carrying it around in my pocket. And it broke, and I was like, I don't care. I have Dropbox. And, I'm, <laughs> and I haven't really needed a flash drive since. So, uh, you've heard of things called Markov chains, haven't you? Yes, we talked about those one other time on the podcast, and we looked at some combination of books where it would mesh the two books together into one one book of interesting quotes that make no sense at all, but kind of evidently make sense to the software. So, uh, Markov chains is where you have, like, some sort of graph, and that's like, you know, like a bunch of nodes or things and connections between them. So... Like, as you go around this structure, like, there's a chance, you know, there are specific chances of, like, where you are right now. Like, there is specific chances of going towards, like, any neighboring thing. So, like, say you're at point A, and you have a 50% chance of going to point B, and <coughs> another 50% chance of going out and looping around and coming back to where you are now. And if you, like, sort of spread that out to, like, several things, you have something called a Markov chain. So, like, this is a very good uh, thing if you want to map out, like, what what is next in a series of events. 
like what is likely to happen uh, after like one thing or whatever. So, and they're very useful for like language analysis. So like, it doesn't even have to understand what a noun is. It doesn't have to understand what a verb is. It just like looks at a body of text and figures out, oh, this word is likely to follow this other word. So like, it just sort of like randomly goes around. So by pure statistics, it can actually guess that certain language structures should happen. Yes. So, oh, you must have turned on the light. Oh, I I, I switched back from looking at you on the the, the video camera to my Google Doc, which is a white background. So that (laughs) that would be the difference. (laughs) So I can't I can't look at myself when it's not light. I hate this new the the Windows 8 Metro Skype. I mean, uninstall it and try installing the the normal Skype. It's it's just a windowed view, view, so you can't use it while you have something else up. You have to switch to the Windows app thing. I don't really like it much. So, uh, as you uh, mentioned, we've looked at Markov chains before. Uh, King James programming. And, uh, you know, I thought about that, and I haven't really uh, read that for a while. And there's some new ones. Uh, uh, one of them is, we want the computer to make an atonement for your sin. So you can sort of see like how it's sort of talking about, uh, let's see, I believe it's the structure and interpretation of computer programs, and then it morphs into some Bible passage. Hey, so, and the thing is, the sentence does actually grammatically make sense, grammatically. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we want the computer to make, you know, something, and like, I'm pretty sure that there's maybe a few passages that say, make an atonement for your sin. Yes, and so it put the make and the other together, and there it is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's basically, like, all possibilities and statistics. So, you know, uh, if you take the word the, you know, there's, you know, then it, like, sort of, like, makes, you know, a possibility chart or whatever, saying, you know, these are all of the words that, you know, follow the, you know, given this body of text, and... I'm pretty sure that pretty much all of those should be nouns. Or maybe an adjective followed by another noun. I'm not good at grammar, so... Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it basically traces out, you know, possibilities again. So, oh, yeah, and another one that I particularly liked. The first program is written in the Book of the Living. <laughs> so I was trying to think of uses of how you could use uh, the Morkoff change for... AI control of things, of making choices and decisions against real life uh, information, because it's kind of similar. I I went to the Pittsburgh Tech Fest this year, and they had a a talk about the artificial intelligence, and he showed some uh, I forget what it was called, but he was basically making like the uh, charts. He'd graph out where the dots of the two groups are falling, and then you like draw you know a line between them, and then that. That line mathematically describes which one is likely to be based on where it's falling within the, that line. And so it, it's a similar concept, except for this, this is working slightly different. So I was trying to think if there's some way to leverage that. So, yeah, there's like all sorts of applications for uh, Markov chains. So, uh, I'd like to appreciate something. I'd like to appreciate the Teal 3D Dice Roller. So this is a WebGL app that rolls a variety of dice types. It even has physics. So um, it was like maybe two weeks ago or so that my manager uh, wanted me to roll some dice, uh, asked me if I had some dice, 
to roll like uh you know some dice to figure out how long he should wait on a call uh before he hangs up waiting for the other client to get on so uh like he asked me this once and i'm like okay well i have python here i could probably do like two random uh numbers here and uh then i'm like okay i could probably like you know automate this a little bit i could probably write just a web page that was like really simple so I put together something and, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. And then like very sarcastically says like, hmm, we might want to try the designers to have a look at this uh, <laughs> to like make it a little prettier. Uh, but uh, then I'm like, hey, someone's probably done this already. So I looked around and found this. So, nice. so you can uh, roll like one of seven kinds of dice and you can roll multiple ones. You can mix up the kinds, too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So you can extra randomize it. Uh, for instance, I just rolled two sixes. So, you know, the interaction is pretty easy here. You, you know, pretty much click or probably tap. Um, I haven't actually touched, uh, used this on a touchscreen device. But, uh, yeah. Actually, pretty actually much... my laptop has a touchscreen on it. Let's try it. It's not. Maybe I turned the touchscreen off the other day. It was. It stopped working on me the other day. It was just randomly touching stuff. I must have it turned off. So never mind. So and then you swipe or click and hold to actually throw the dice. And if you notice that, it, like it throws in the direction that you swipe in, or drag in. It does, which is pretty great. And you know, it, it even has you know like a physics library in it, so it bounces around pretty convincingly. So you know, I can. Uh, this will definitely help me when I put on my paleontologist hat and simulate some damage. So I was trying to understand their symbols for different types of dice. Each one has a different numerical. It has like 1D and then some number. Oh, one dice. Okay, then yeah. that's showing how many sides it has got it. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. There you go. I finally figured it out. <laughs> uh, for instance, like 3D20. That's three dice of 20 sides. Aha. Uh -huh. So, like, if you're, ooh, I got three twelves, nice. Um, so, like, if you're, like, into, like, uh, board games, like, RPG board games, uh, like, you have, like, all sorts of weird polyhedral dice that's not your uh, normal cube. So now if you lose your dice, you can just use the dice on this website instead. Yep. I'm the paleontologist, I'm simulating damage, Rawr! My Triceratops uses main horn for 2d4s. My my Plesiosaur can't dodge on land. It takes critical damage. Oh, the flippers are gone. So unfortunately, we do not have any feedback this week. Uh, but if you would like to submit some feedback, uh, use the uh, the contact link uh, on uh, the show note page, actually. And don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day. Uh, in fact, I, you know, every time I go home, I exchange hard drives uh, in the closet there. Um, so, like, I keep, you know, a uh, offline, uh, off-site backup. And uh, let's see, I also put my music on my work laptop since I had it here and it was on. Anything you'll be up to? Well, right now I'm hitting Windows 8. <laughs> I just did a swipe move thing and it switched back to the Skype. I was like, I never asked you to do that, really. <laughs> so now I'm looking to see if my pointer, what happened to my pointer. 
I actually think my touchscreen might be bad on this, maybe. It's got like a one year warranty on the laptop, so maybe I might have to look into that, because it is definitely not showing up my, my touchscreen in the device manager. Hmm. Sure it's not a toaster? It might be a toaster. <laughs> but anyways, other things I might be doing uh, this week. Let's see. Um, You'll be working from home. I will be working from home. Uh, my church is on Wednesdays instead of Thursdays, so that would be different. Um, what else? Maybe look, pull the, the, the brakes off of my car and see why it pulsates when I brake. That might be a good one to look at, too. Yeah. That's just about it, I guess. Um, let's see. I'll be going to a Pirates game on Monday. Nice. Um. Did you, did you give blood again? Is that how? Uh, no, that was actually from, like, last month sometime. Or maybe two months ago. Um, let's see. Then I will probably, uh, get my car painted. So I'll probably be working from home for about a week. So it shouldn't be much of a problem. So... Let's see. Other than that, I think that might be it. So have a good one. You too.